Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue with the season of Advent. Who is in and who is out in the people of God? And where will you find the best little whorehouse in Canaan? Join us for the message, Harlots in the Holy Family, Rahab. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I ask you a question, who is in and who is out in the people of God? And where will you find the best little whorehouse in Canaan? We'll talk about that later on in our message. This morning's scripture begins with the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 and 5 through 6a. Listen now to the word of God. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Is knowing a genealogy, anyone's genealogy, really important? Does it make any kind of difference? Does it set us up for some sort of destiny? Well, let's consider that. Did learning anything about his ancestors mean anything to, say, Luke Skywalker? <laughs> Luke, I am your father. I sound just like Darth Vader, I know. <laughs> well, how about Harry Potter? You're a wizard, Harry. For both Luke and Harry, the revelation of their heritage led to a great transformation and a great plot twist. We also learn early on in the Harry Potter books that much is made out of whether someone is from an all-magic family or if one was muggle-born. And later in the saga, people distinguish even further between those who uh, are, from, are considered a full-blood or a half-blood witch or wizard. Well, Matthew starts his gospel with the words, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew is placing Jesus firmly in the saga of the Jewish people. Any Jew would be able to trace their genealogy back to Abraham. In fact, a descendant of Abraham could almost be used as a definition of what a Jew is. Though perhaps it's not quite as clear-cut as it may seem. Because our heritage includes not only our genetic lineage, lineage, but the history and the stories of our people. And in his story of Jesus, Matthew includes four women in this ancient genealogy, which would not normally include any women. But these four women, Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, are included Moreover, their stories have been stories that, upon which the boy Jesus would have been raised. He would have grown up hearing about these women and hearing their story. And he would have been heard their story as he was considering them part of his own family. But we also know there are other very storied women in the Bible. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah and Rachel, Miriam, Deborah and Esther 
So why did Matthew include Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, but not these other great women of the Bible? Well, I can tell you scholars have been debating this one for centuries. One idea, one idea is that Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba were not technically daughters of Abraham. They themselves were not Jewish, even if their line was woven into the lineage of Abraham and therefore the lineage of Jesus. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, uh, Ruth was a Moabite, and while Bathsheba is a Hebrew name, we learn later that she is married to Uriah the Hittite, so many surmise that she was a Hittite as well. Perhaps Matthew wants us to see how this very Jewish Messiah ultimately came for all humankind because he came from all humankind. Matthew's gospel begins with this Jewish genealogy, but ends with these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Matthew gives his readers a foreshadowing of the universal mission of Jesus by including four Gentiles in this Jewish genealogy. Or, another theory of Bible scholars, perhaps Matthew wanted to guard the reputation of Mary, the mother of Jesus. By being found pregnant before her wedding to Joseph, she would have been subject to disapproval, ostracism, and possibly even death by stoning. Right after the genealogy, Matthew dives right into the story of the birth of Jesus. He tells it from the perspective of Joseph. And Matthew wants to make it very clear that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit, but also that Joseph was directed in a dream to not hesitate to take Mary as his wife. But the thing is, to the outside world, Mary would still have appeared to be sexually suspect. And as we shall see and have seen, each of these women included in Matthew's genealogy would also be considered sexually suspect as well. Matthew wants to remind us that such suspect women have always been a part of God's family. Which I think is good news. <laughs> it was good news in, the days in, the, in Matthew's day because the women then lived under an oppressive patriarchy, especially those that did not fit neatly into the prescribed roles of wife and mother. And I think it's still even good news for women today who can still suffer from the remnants of modern patriarchy. I think this is good news to anyone for example, who has ever suffered any kind of sexual abuse. Even today, many around the world, women, but also children and men, are forced into sex work. Among those considered sexually suspect nowadays would include members of the LGBTQ community. But now what Matthew is saying is that none of these, for whatever reason, are barred from being part of the people of God. But I think there's another reason why the stories of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba were remembered and retold, not only in Scripture, but also throughout later Jewish tradition. Each one of them is considered a heroine for upholding the law and or protecting the Israelites from their enemies. One of my very favorite authors 
Amy Jill Levine, who has written many of the studies that our, our Sunday school has, has, uh, has used, she says that each of these women exhibited a higher righteousness. And she wrote this specifically about them. Each woman was socioeconomically, politically, or culturally powerless, and all fulfilled their role in Israel's salvation history by overcoming obstacles created by people in authority unwilling to fulfill their responsibilities. And if this is true of anyone, it is particularly true of Rahab. She is a working prostitute in the Canaanite city of Jericho, <coughs> the Canaanite city of Jericho, just as the Israelites are poised to enter the promised land, kill all of its inhabitants, and claim the land as their own. Our next reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, Swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Joshua was appointed the leader of the Israelites after the death of Moses. Since the exodus from Egypt 40 years prior, Moses has led the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. And now it is time for them to take possession of the land that was promised to their forebear, Abraham. So Joshua sends out two men to spy out the land. And the first place they go to is the local prostitute. Now, much has been made about why the two spies went to a brothel 
while most have ignored the obvious reason. Here are some suggestions that have been used to excuse the spy's behavior. Rahab wasn't really a prostitute, she was an innkeeper. Except that the Hebrew makes it pretty clear that she was in fact a prostitute and later scripture and tradition identifies her consistently as a prostitute. Here's another one. By going to the local house of prostitution, the spies could find out the information they were seeking with no questions asked. Or, because of the location of Rahab's house within the city walls, as we shall see later, they could stay there but still make a quick getaway if needed. Or, this is, I think the most far-fetched of all, maybe they went to a house of prostitution because God providentially told them to go there. <laughs> Even though the text says nothing of the sort. I think the simplest reason the men went to a prostitute was because they wanted to go to a prostitute. They had no qualms about going to pay for sex from a woman that presumably they would later slaughter. In fact, the spies were so obvious and their behavior was so reckless that the king's men knew that they were there and came to find them. But Rahab, she is really smart. She hides the two spies up on a roof among all the newly harvested flax, and then comes up with a very quick story. Yes, they were here, but they left for the city gates. Quick, pursue them before they get too far. So instead of searching her house, which is what the king's men had came there to do, they immediately leave to go chase after the spies. And of course, she tells the king's men to go in the wrong direction. Well, later that evening, Rahab goes back up on the roof and, and makes what is really a startling confession of faith in the Israelites' God. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Well, since the spies were completely at her mercy, they agreed to the proposal. Our final reading is again from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 15 through 18 and 21 through 24. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. She said to them, Go toward the hill country, so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you if we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you let us down, and you do not gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family. She said, According to your words, so be it. She sent them away, and they departed. Then she tied the crimson cord in the window. They departed and went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men 
two men came down again from the hill country. They crossed over, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Rahab literally lives within the walls of the city. And what is described here is what archaeologists called a casemate fortification. So instead of one stone wall surrounding the city, some ancient cities were surrounded by a set of parallel walls that surrounded their city. And the space in between the walls could be used for storage or even for residences, which is what we see here. So Rahab lived in the spaces between the two parallel fortification walls. And this includes a window from which the two spies could be lowered down outside the outer wall. She's instructed to bring her entire family within her house and suspend a red cord out her window so that later when the city was besieged, the Israelite soldiers would know not to attack those inside. And notice how very shrewdly Rahab makes the deal for her entire extended family, her parents, her brothers and sisters, and all of their respective families, all who belong to them. After Rahab lowers the two spies to their escape, they run and hide for three days. And then, going back to Joshua, they excitingly tell him, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. The thing is, the two spies never actually did any real spying. They simply took Rahab's word for it, and then they hid for three days. Later on in the book of Joshua, when the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down, we are told that Rahab's entire family is spared. It says there in chapter 6, But Rahab the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So some observations. I think it's significant that right on the cusp of the Israelites taking of the promised land, the story that we are told right before the conquest begins is not a story of the strength of the Israelite army or a story about the bravery of their soldiers. It's the story instead of a Canaanite woman, a prostitute even. And when so often the Bible fails to name women, Rahab is the only person in this story who is given a name. None of the spies, not the king's men, they're not given names. In her society, as in most societies, being a prostitute was a dishonored and marginalized profession, yet it was so often the only one that would be left for a woman who had no male relative to take her in. But in contrast, Rahab evidently is the breadwinner for her entire family. It says she has parents and brothers as well as sisters. But her marginalization is so evident that she literally lives within the margins of her city's walls, right in the city walls themselves. And Rahab knows that nothing will ever change for her or her family as long as everything else stays the same. Only risking her future to align with these incoming Israelites will cause anything to change. In fact, many biblical scholars think that many of those who end up calling themselves Israelites included many Canaanite peasants 
who took the incoming army's conquest as a chance to rebel against their overlords, gain their freedom, and improve their lives. So it ends up that being part of the people of the God, being part of the people of God was never completely dependent on a person being a blood descendant of Abraham. In fact, we've already gotten a hint of this in the book of Exodus when we are told that many who left Egypt with the Israelites were not, in fact, themselves Israelites. It says this in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed crowd also went up with them, and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. We read this in Exodus, then the Bible tells us the story of Rahab, and later in the book of Joshua, the story of the Gibeonites, who also choose to align themselves with the Israelites. So it seems that it's really not so clear-cut who is an insider and who is an outsider, who is an Israelite and who is a Canaanite, and who is a part of the people of God, and who is not. In the end, it was Rahab's confession of faith in the God of Israel that makes her family a part of Israel. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab puts her faith in the God of the Exodus because the coming of the Israelites will be her family's exodus from marginalization and social ostracism. So the God of Exodus becomes then the God of liberation. And I think this foretells what the people of God or foretells that the people of God are going to be a different kind of people. This will be a people where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And a place where the marginalized will be at the center of God's new kingdom. While still pregnant with, with Jesus, Mary proclaims this kingdom in her very famous declaration known as the Magnificat. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And he has grafted a prostitute from Canaan into the family of God. After this, all the times Rahab is mentioned, either in Scripture or later in Jewish tradition, She is usually referred to as Rahab the prostitute. But nowhere is she shamed or condemned for being a prostitute. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews includes Rahab in his roll call of faith by saying, By faith the people passed from the Red Sea as if it were dry land. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish because she had received the spies in peace. The writer of James says of her, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? In fact, later on in Jewish tradition, they even referred to Rahab as a prophet. As we journey through Advent, and we await the coming of the Christ child, remember the kind of kingdom that is being realized through the coming of Jesus. If we are on on the outside 
if we find ourselves in the margins, suspended in the in-between of the very walls of our city or of our society, then the coming of Christ is good news. And if we live in the center of the city, the place of privilege, God's kingdom may come as a rude awakening. In so many ways, most of us, myself included, are people of such privilege. But if we are ready to scatter the proud, to bring down the powerful and lift up the lowly, if we are ready to fill the hungry with good things, then we too will be welcomed and grafted into the people of God. So this Advent, remember, sometimes being on the margin is the very thing that makes us the center of God's story. Amen. And now receive this benediction. May you travel with the people of God and find liberation from all that binds you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we continue to celebrate the season of Advent by exploring Jesus' female ancestors in our sermon series, Harlots and the Holy Family. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Church.